Our scripture reading this morning is Genesis 1, again, entire chapter. Genesis 1, the very first book of the Bible, and the very first chapter of the Bible. So Genesis 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. And darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. Then God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning a second day. Then God said, Let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind with seed in them. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He made the stars also. And God placed them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth and to govern the day and the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, and there was morning, a fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea monsters, and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarmed after their kind, and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening, and there was morning a fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind, and the cattle after their kind, and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea 
and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth, and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and to everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So far, the reading of our scripture, dear congregation, there was a group of men and women in Siberia, in Russia, during the time of, uh, during pa- in past history, and uh, when Russia was a socialist state yet, and they were suffering terribly. And some Americans went there to speak with them, to ask them, what is, what is, what's needed to fix this? What could relieve your suffering? And they were astounded to hear these people say, we need more socialism. We need, we need more and better socialism, more and better government control. And of course, we hear that and we're astonished, right, to think, well, wait a minute, that, that's the problem. That's what's got you into this predicament in the first place. You don't need more socialism. Socialism is what caused this problem for you. Right? We hear that with, with astonishment that these, these, these people living in, in such misery would want more of what caused their misery in the first place. Now, I'd just like you to kind of tuck that story into the back of your mind as I preach, and I'll return to that in my applications at the end. But I just lay that on your mind, sort of plant that seed, and uh, we'll come back to that. But remember those Russians in Siberia wishing they had more socialism to help relieve their misery. Well, at any rate, we return now to the book of Genesis. And this morning, especially, uh, dear friends, I'd like to consider with you the creation of man, the creation of humans, man and women, men and women, male and female. So our text that I've taken there is from Genesis 1, verse 26, where God says, let us make man in our image. Now, before we get to man, though, we want to look at the creation of all the animals. Because the text of Scripture gives us something very specific here. And again, I don't stand in the pulpit here to give you a scientific lecture, but when the word of Scripture touches on science, I'm also going to bring that up. So if you look in Genesis 1, verse 12, here's the first instance that we have that God teaches us that everything was created after its kind. right? And we see this repeatedly. And again, I gave you that long list of texts there, five of them, that have this this, uh, repeated uh, teaching given us that God created, in verse 12, the vegetation, plants, yielding seed after their kind. And of course, that's what we find in the world, right? That we find we have apple trees, and we have orange trees, we have oak and maples, and and we have plants, right? And uh, of all churches in the the denomination, this church ought to know that, right? You you, uh, people are so skilled at... Uh, all the greenhouses that we have here and, and all the different kinds of plants, right? You, you see, you work, you have your hands in this stuff every day, many of you. So in verse 12, we have vegetation. And then in verse 12, again, we have trees. So plants, but now also trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. You see how the, the author here, Moses, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, keeps pounding away on this point, right? That things are created after their kind, right? I think uh, the scientific word that we would use today would be species. But you know, and again, I, I confess my ignorance of science, but I had to go back and study this. 
uh, material this, this week. Uh, but you know, there's all these classifications, right? This taxonomy of different plants. And I, I can't give them all to you, I'm sorry. But you know that it starts with, well, you have deciduous trees and coniferous trees, right? And, and then they all kind of narrow down, right, into these specific kinds. And that's exactly what the scripture, right, is now teaching us. That God created the plant world and the tree world in that way. That they would function within their own kinds. And then in verse 21, we have God speaking about the animals in the sea. So the great sea monsters, whales and sharks and all the terrifying things that live under the sea. And, uh, and again, in verse uh, 21, the water is swarmed uh, after their kind. So the, the sea, the ocean going, and the waterborne animals. But then also the, the, uh, the winged birds in verse 21. Everything that flies in the sky after its kind in verse 21. And then to drop down to verse 24, we have the land animals. Let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind. Cattle, creeping things, and beasts of the earth after their kind. So the Bible and God by means of the Bible is impressing upon us that God created the animal world, the plant world, okay, birds and fish, to function within their own species, after their kind. Now, of course, the writer of Scripture didn't have this understanding of species, right? Uh, and yet he kind of did have an understanding of it, didn't he? Perhaps not, well, certainly not all the scientific knowledge that we would have today, right? God didn't give all the writers of Scripture omniscience, right? He didn't give them full knowledge of, of everything that we know. But on the same token, neither did God allow them to say anything that was erroneous. God guided the process of the, of the scriptures being written, and it was written accurately. Not just accurately in matters of faith, right? But accurate even in matters of science. And we have such an illustration of that here, that these species were created by God. Now we know, of course, that the explanation we're given today is that by means of gradual evolution from very simple forms, all the different animals that we have today came into existence. And you can see, dear friends, that that runs very directly contrary to what the Scripture teaches here. So we have to reject even forms of theistic evolution, right? That evolution was guided by God. The Scripture teaches that God created species. They did not gradually evolve. Now, uh, when, I, when I studied things like this, I'm rather curious, and I, I thought, you know, I'm just going to look up how do scientists explain the, uh, um, species? Because think with me for a minute. Think with me for a minute. If there was no intelligent creator, if there was no God who created things, but things simply evolved gradually from very simple forms, say, you know, a, a one-celled animal like a bacteria or something, and then, you know, gradually over millions of years it evolved into this. And again, think with me here. Why would there be any species at all? Now again, I, I'm asking this question. This isn't something that comes from the Bible, but the Bible makes very clear to us that God did create species, and that's, that's what we see in the world. right? Even the least gifted scientist amongst us can look in the world and see that. You, know, you cannot breed a dog and a cat together. They're species, separate and distinct. Now that certainly fits with the Scripture, but how does it fit with what we're told and what, we're, what, what every science book, just go into any school, uh, except hopefully a Christian school, right? But any, any secular biology book, you open it up and you'll see the little tree of life, right? You've got the very simple-celled organism here and they 
some of them went this way, right? And some of them went that way. And then, and then uh, fish became amphibians and amphibians became reptiles, right? And, and so on. We've all seen the tree of life. And yet, and yet when we look out into the world, you know, we don't see all these transitional forms between dogs and cats, right? Or between fish and amphibians. But my question to you this morning, dear friends, based on what scripture teaches us, is why is there even such a thing as a frog or an amphibian or a reptile or, or, or any of these kinds? If things just gradually evolved, then we would just expect an infinite variety and, and a gradation of complexity, right? There would not be dog and cat. There would be everything between dog and cat and all the different varieties, and yet, this is the standard form. You know, I was, I, I was, I, I think probably like you as well, sometimes you, you are a little reluctant to get into the studying some of this stuff because it seems so complicated and, and the, the scientists who teach us these things are so gifted. You know, they have multiple doctorates and they write huge books. And yet, sometimes I'm astounded at how simple this is. For instance, a, a leading scientist that I was reading this week said that, what do you mean? There's all kinds of transitional forms out there. After all, just look at a frog. A frog is a transitional form, he said, between, and I forget, was it reptiles and amphibians or something like that? And you step back astounded and think, well, wait a minute. A frog is a distinct species all on its own. It's not a transitional form. But that's what these scientists are, are trying to tell us. And the, the, the scientists who don't share this secular worldview, well, let me say something about that a minute. So if, if you don't believe that this is the word of God, right, and if you don't believe that there is a God, period, in fact, let me just ask you that this morning. Let me ask you again. I know I've done this a number of times in the past, but if you can kind of lift yourself out of your shoes, right, and step into the shoes of a secular person, try, try to adopt his mind a minute. I know that's almost impossible for us to do, but if you, if you do, and you begin to raise these rather existential questions, right, about where did we come from, where are we going, and you think about that question, where did we come from, what would your answer be? If you have that worldview, that there's no intelligent creator out there, that there's no God, how would you explain everything that we see around us? You would be driven into some kind of explanation, right, of uh, purposeless, unintelligent kind of evolution. You'd have to believe it. Well, you say, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence for it. Well, it doesn't matter. It's not a, it's not a theory. It's a fact. It has to be a fact. It's a fact! It's a fact! Right? And that's what you hear over and over in the, in, the, in the news media and in the books of today. It's a fact! Why, it's not a theory. Well, of course it's a fact for them. They have no other option. They have to explain the origin of life, the origin of the universe, the origin of human intelligence, the origin of our personality. Some way, without an appeal to an intelligent creator. And that's why they have to, they have to be religious about it, don't they? They have to get... In fact, that is the religion of secularism, right? What is the religion of a secular... By secular person, I mean a person who has no religion. The religion of secularism... I know I just said they have no religion, but they do. They have a, the religion of, of evolution. That is their religion. And they are committed to it with a faith commitment. There's very little evidence for it. All right? They, they, they are as committed to it because they, there's no other option for them. If they abandon evolution, which, by the way... You, ha you see the curious fact today, and I discovered this this week as well, that there are, there, are, there are secular people now who are abandoning the theory of evolution, who are critiquing it. 
And, and then you wonder to yourself, right, well, what, what, what takes its place? Well, you, you need some explanation. Well, these people, I guess they're honest, right? They're more honest than the other ones who are constantly pounding the pulpit that evolution is a fact, it's a fact, and so on and so forth. Well, these people are saying, sorry, there's just too many objections to evolution. I, I, I have some problems with it. Uh, and, oh, are you a Christian now? No. Well, one more thing to say about this, uh, dear friends, before I move on, and that is that point there I have on information. So I ask the question, why are there any species at all? That's a question that we get just from using our eyes, right? Comparing what we see in the world with what we read in Scripture. And the secular explanation just doesn't seem to fit the facts, even just using our own eyes. But what about information? And this is something, again, that I find so fascinating. And, and one part of me wishes I could, I could get into this more. But uh, I am told that in the nucleus of every human cell, and there are over a trillion cells in the human body, there is something called DNA. DNA. And DNA is a language. It is a, it is a code. They have an, it has an alphabet. There is adenine and cytosine and guanine and thymine. And the, the uh, scientists use letters. Adenine is A, cytosine is C, guanine is G, and thiamine is T. And those molecules, they have four letters in the alphabet. Those molecules uh, are arranged in a certain way to become information. And so then the RNA in the cell comes and reads that information and produces a protein based on that information. And you think, what? That's incredible. There's information in a cell. There, and again, I'm told that the amount of information in a cell is, is the equivalent of several sets of encyclopedias. One man was asked, this was, again, this was a secular man, by the way, who was asked this question, would you say that the human cell is something like a, a Boeing 747 in its complexity? And the man said, no, 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 no. It's like a Boeing 747 factory! A factory of Boeing 747s. That's the human cell, and there's a trillion of those, over a trillion of those in the human body. But my friends, my point with this is, if there is information in the human cell, information, and again, think, think with me here, information only comes from a mind. Right? If I had a, a bucket up here of, you know, Scrabble, you play the game Scrabble, and it's got all the letters on it, right? And if I took that bucket and I upended it here in the pulpit and it all just landed here, right, the letters would just be scattered. But if you came up and looked and it said, let's just say it said welcome, well, you would immediately conclude, right, that somebody had arranged those letters in that pattern to give that message, welcome. Nobody would ever stop to think, oh, that information there, welcome, or whatever it may have said, originated by chance. In fact, if you knew that it did, let's just say by some freak occurrence, it did. I, I poured out those letters and, it, and, it, and they, the letters fell into the arrangement of welcome. But if you knew that that was purely made up by chance, right, you wouldn't receive the information it contained, right? It would just be a chance happening, happenstance, right, that they happened to fall that way. But as soon as you know that somebody intentionally arranged those letters, right, just like here on, we have here, the creation of humans, you immediately know that that is the process of intelligence. Those letters are arranged that way. Well, dear friends, there's, there's trillions of these things in the human body, and, and not even in a human body, in, in the body of a flea. And all containing these letters of A, C, G, and T arranged specifically 
to produce certain proteins that do certain tasks in the human cell. Now, as a, as a person, when you stumble across that, what, what should you immediately be led to believe? That behind all the animals and all this information that is contained in human cells, there is some intelligence. Information doesn't arise without intelligence. Now, I, again, I just... To me, it's, it's, it's something similar to if you were hiking through the woods and you came upon Mount Rushmore and you looked up at that mountain, Nobody for a minute would think that what you saw on Mount Rushmore had been the result of erosion and sun and, and water. And, and that's laughable, right? That's just ridiculous. Okay? But then why is it even less ridiculous? Dear friends, and especially young people, when you face these theories in school, in college, if you face them in college, you will face them in college, even Christian colleges, by the way, right? I don't know why you can't answer very simply like this. Where did all that, the information in a human cell, Did that arise from no intelligence at all? Ah, that's ridiculous. That's impossible. There's a mind behind the human cell, and that's so clear. Well, God created each beast, each animal, each plant, each tree after its kind with specific information dictating how those cells were to arrange themselves to become an oak tree or a zebra or all kinds of things. Unbelievable. At any rate, with all the amazing things that we see in the animal world, dear congregation, I come to my second main point here, that this was still not what God intended. This was still not enough. This was not what God was looking to do. God was looking for something higher and greater. In a sense, everything I've said so far is just an introduction to, a preparation now for the grand moment in week one. The first day had passed, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, Right, And in that sixth day, verse 26, that's our text. Then God said, let us. Now that's different than anything God had done previously. Now God summons, as it were, the, the persons of the Trinity. And again, this is a mystery, isn't it? Such a mystery to us. But God summons his own Godhead and says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now that too is something different, isn't it? That God was now going to make a creature that was going to be in some sense like God, in God's image. In congregation, the, the, the chapter 2 of Genesis focuses more in on that sixth day. So if you would turn with me to Genesis 2 and verse 7, you'll see, and actually all of Genesis 2 is, is sort of the sixth day, but blown up in, in, in greater detail. It's zoomed in. But in Genesis 2 and verse 7, you can read, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils. And again, this is not something that happened to any other animal. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, when we compare Scripture with Scripture, we can turn to verse, uh, or we can turn to Job thirty-two, and verse eight, where we see again a, something of a another side of what that means. In Job thirty-two and verse eight, Elihu here is speaking, and he says, "But it is a spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty." Now, what Elihu is saying here is that when God breathed into man, he placed he. 
He input into man a spirit, or what in our language we would call a soul. That's what we have in verse 8 there. But it is a spirit in man, and the breath of the Almighty gives them understanding. And in Genesis 2 verse 7, we read that the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils. Not just that he put air in his lungs. It's much deeper than that. God gave man a whole other side. Man has a material side that we call the body, but he has an immaterial side that we call a soul. It's not made of stuff. It's not made of atoms and molecules and DNA and such. It is immaterial. It is a soul. God breathed into man that soul. And that soul is how man is in God's image. There were plants, there were animals with all their amazing complexity after their kind, but now God creates something that can answer back to him. God can speak to man. God can covenant with man. And man now has a spirit within him, a soul within him, that can answer back to God. What does that mean, friends? That means there can be communion and fellowship between man and his creator. God cannot fellowship with animals and with plants and trees. But God can fellowship with man. And that is the crowning point of the creation week. God now makes man that he can fellowship with. He's created in his image and God has breathed into that man a soul, a living rational soul that makes choices, that deliberates, that can speak, has the ability of, of language and of memory, and that can commune with his sovereign creator. Well, my friends, that is man then. And that's my third point then. Body and soul. Body and soul. We can read in Genesis 35. And by the way, there are a number of Many theologians today who reject this distinction between a body and a soul say that man is just a, a unitary thing. But if you read in, in Genesis 35 and verse 18, which is where we read about the death of Rachel, in Genesis 35 and verse 18, it came about as her soul was departing, for she died, that she named him and so on. Her soul departed from her body. Right. So there's two things. We are dualists. There is a dual character to the human nature. There is a soul and there is a body. And in verse in Matthew 10 and verse 28, Matthew 10 and verse 28, you can see Jesus speaking about those who can kill the body, but not the soul. Genesis 10 and verse 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. So man has two things. And that soul of man in which he is created in God's image, it reaches out for God. It cries out for him. Even in the most debauched, depraved atheist that ever lived, there is in that soul something that reaches out for something higher and bigger and more significant. And you see Paul preaching that in Acts 17, right? Where Paul writes that, or Paul is speaking to the Athenians there, and he made from one man, that is God made from one man, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him. In other words, the, the idea here is it's like in the dark, feeling for the doorknob, right? They might feeling for the wall, feeling for a light switch. But in this case, God made man with this soul that they might feel for him. It's dark. They can't see him. They can't find him. 
But they grope, they look, they feel, they try to find him, though he is not far from each one of us. So, congregation, this is the creation of man. For all the amazing uh, complexity in the animal world, man is the crowning point of God's creation because he has God's image, and that image is his soul, the soul of man, which enables him to reach out to God and which enables God to reach out for man and for the connection to happen, that God can speak to man and have fellowship with him in a unique and special way. Well, congregation, we come then to, these, uh, to, the, to the last part of the sermon, and I want to make these three principles, actually three principles and then this question, and these three principles follow logically. So try to think with me here as through these, through these different principles and to see the implication at the end in this grand question. And my first principle is that God has created everything for a purpose. God has created everything for a purpose, for a reason. And God has hardwired, you might say, everything to achieve that purpose. That means every rock on the ground, every tree on the earth, every animal performs the purpose which God created it for. Now, they don't have to think about that. They just do it, right? Even, even animals, they don't, they don't think about doing God's will or performing the purpose for which God created them. They just do it instinctively. They're wired that way. Every animal fulfills God's purpose just by existing. Every rock, every tree. They glorify God just as they are. But my second principle is that humans are different. Humans are different in what way? Because humans have the image of God. They have the soul. That means humans have the ability to make these choices, don't they? And so humans have the ability to reject God's purpose for them. And especially Adam and Eve had this, had this ability to choose God's purpose for them. In other words, they could make the reason that God made them, the purpose for which God had created humans, they could make that their own purpose for living. They could make God's purpose their own purposes. We have those higher faculties, don't we, of a mind and a will, right? And we have that ability to think and to deliberate. Animals are just driven by their instinct. We have the ability, you might say, to step out of ourselves and to look back on what we're doing, to think about ourselves, to think about how we're acting. And we have that ability then to make God's purpose our purpose. Animals just do God's purpose and rocks and trees without thinking about it. They don't make any choices. But humans are different, aren't they? Humans are free agents. They make choices about the pathway they're going to walk. They make choices about going to the right or to the left. And God created them with that ability. And God created the first humans with that ability to make God's purpose their purpose or the opposite, right? And of course, that's what we saw in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? That they chose to go their own way. They chose to pursue their own purpose and not to answer the purpose that God gave them to perform. So humans are different. Now my third principle, every human person makes choices that they believe will lead them to happiness. Now I don't know what choices you're going to make on Monday morning. 
I have no idea what choices you're going to make on Monday morning, but I do know this. Whatever choice you make on Monday morning and on Tuesday morning and so on, you believe that that choice will lead you to happiness. I can say that with absolute certainty. Every choice you make, you believe is going to advance your own happiness. Happiness is the goal that every human agent aims at. Every human person makes choices that they believe will lead them to that goal, happiness. You agree with that? Every person is aiming at happiness. And that leads me then to my grand question. Those three principles, we're not animals. We are free agents with the ability to make choices and to rationally think. And we all, always and always are aiming at happiness, which leads us to this grand question. And the grand question is simple. Will the choices that you're making really lead you to happiness? Because a drunken person believes that alcohol will lead him to happiness. A drug addict, okay, a person who's living in the world, right? And that's where the whole matter of sin now becomes introduced, isn't it? The whole matter of sin, because sin is nothing more than adopting for our purpose for living a purpose that is not God's purpose. That's why I put that in there. You might wonder why that's there. A large pile of dirt and a helicopter. If you had a large pile of dirt and your boss told you, go get me a tool that I can move this pile of dirt with, and if you came back with a helicopter, right, your boss would look at you like you're crazy. That tool won't accomplish that purpose. A helicopter was designed for another purpose. I need some tool that's going to accomplish the purpose of moving this pile. Well, congregation is in the same way. God created you for a purpose. And that is to answer to Him. That is to commune with Him. That is the purpose for which God created you. And if we now choose, for our purpose in life, another goal, and we start aiming at another goal, then it's no different than that person who brings a helicopter to move a pile of dirt. And let me take you back to the Russians in Siberia, who believe that the, 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 the secret to their happiness, the answer to their misery, is more socialism. And isn't that the sad thing that we see in life all around us? is people who are chasing happiness, but the path they're on isn't going to take them there. Why? Because they don't understand the purpose for which God created them. You follow me there? God created you for a purpose. And my friends, until you understand what that purpose is, and until you make the choice in your own heart and mind to make that purpose your purpose, you will never find happiness. Listen to me this morning. The pathway you're on, and this, by the way, I'm not just speaking to the children and the young people, adults, elderly. I'm speaking to all of you this morning. I'm speaking to myself. The path you're on will not lead you to happiness unless you understand what God's purpose is for your creation and unless you make that purpose your own. Dear friends, dear friends, I, I ask you to look, I ask you to do what only humans can do, and that is to step out of yourself for a minute and to turn around and look. Look at the path you're on, whether you're young, whether you're old today. What are you chasing in this life? And are you sure that that pathway 
will take you to where you think it's going to take you. What a terrible thing it is, dear friends, when people run down the pathway of life and when they do it vigorously and earnestly and zealously and sincerely. But it doesn't take them where they think it's going to take them. What a sad, sad thing when people wake up and realize that all along on their life they were on the wrong path. The path they thought would take them to such and such, well, they thought it would take them to happiness, but it took them somewhere else. Young people, children, if you were on the way to Indianapolis and you were on Highway 75 going north, which takes you directly to the UP, don't you think it would be the better part of mercy if somebody would point out to you that path doesn't go where you think it's going to take you. And my friends, that's what parents and the elderly and myself and hopefully all of your friends are such that will say, listen, you're on the wrong path. You might think that path is going to take you to happiness, but it's going to take you to heartbreak and misery and a wreck. Think about that. And you know, really all I'm asking you this morning, dear friends, is to be a human. To be a person. To be the thing that God created. You know, animals drive after happiness, right? In the sense that they instinctively, you know, chase things. But many people live in the same way, don't they? They never stop and think, does this pathway take me to where I think it's going to take me? But the message of Scripture to us this morning is that God created you as a human He created you with the ability to think and to think rationally and to assess your choices that you're making to see whether they're going to take you to where you think they're going to take you. And there's this whole matter of sin, which I haven't said a whole lot about, but we certainly talked about it a lot in the the last evening, in the Sunday evening messages, which warps our understanding of what happiness is, which takes us away from the the right path that really leads us to happiness. So my friends, I... I seriously and sincerely ask you to consider your pathway that you're on and to think about the fact that sin sin twists our understanding of what God's purpose for us is and to come back to the Word of God, to come back to the book of Genesis and understand what it means to be a human and act like one and perform the purpose that God created you to perform. And in the keeping of his commandments, there is great delight. I close now with that quote from Augustine. Isn't that a beautiful quote? That's right on the very first page of Augustine's Confessions. And Augustine says, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Augustine knew the purpose for which God had created him. And he said that as long as we are outside of that path, Our hearts are restless. We never can find what we think we're going to find. Dear friends, young and old, I ask you to pray over that this day. I ask you to lay your hand on that quote right there. Lord, you've made me for yourself. And my heart is restless until it comes to rest in you. And that by faith you would come to rest in God and in his purpose for your life. May God grant that for us and our children. Let us pray.
Lord, we draw near to you at the close of this message. And Lord, you've created us as humans. And you've created us in your image. You've created us with a soul and a spirit that, that can commune with you. You've created us, Lord, for a purpose. Lord, help us to know that purpose. And help us to run in it. Lord, this is, this is so basic to human living. This is so basic of what it means as a Christian to honor you in all of our life and living and choices. But Lord, we confess that we often live like animals. We often live like those who just pursue pleasure. We chase pleasure without a second thought about whether this road will really bring us to where we think it's going to bring us. And hence, all the heartbreak, Lord, all the tears, all the weeping that we see in society as they live for a purpose for which you have never intended them to live. Oh God, we pray earnestly that there would come in our day and our time a revival of interest, Lord, in why you have created us and that we would pursue that purpose, that we would seek to live lives, Lord, that reach up for you, that we would feel after you and find you. Lord, you are near to every one of us. But Lord, there is sin and depravity in our souls which prevents us from doing this, which has us reaching and chasing all sorts of other things that can never bring us happiness. Oh God, give us your spirit so that we might make that right and good choice to say with Joshua of old, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Lord, I pray that you would bless us then as we reflect upon these things and that our restless hearts would come to rest in you. Lord, remember us in your mercy then. Will you bless us also as we return this evening for worship again? Lord, may your name be praised and glorified in our study of your word. Lord, we're thankful again that Mr. Bob DeBoer can be with us, that his cast has been removed, and that he can begin to see progress, Lord, on the path of healing. Lord, we pray that you would continue to bless this brother and bless him also as he gathers with us. And hear our prayer, Lord. We ask all these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.